Welcome to the 10 a.m. Bible study here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And we're going to start out in 1 Timothy chapter 2, so um, turn your Bibles there, please. We're picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago um, in our series on the doctrines of grace, and specifically the doctrine of limited atonement. If you recall, we were looking at the passages that are often used to argue against limited atonement, what we might call problem texts, although they're not a problem in and of themselves. The problem is in the interpretation or misinterpretation of them. And recall that I said that we're going to look at three types or categories of these passages. And we were on the very first category, and we covered these two passages. And this morning we're going to cover uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. So Paul, writing to Timothy in these two verses, says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here we have, seemingly, Paul saying this is what God's desire is. Well, you recall we've talked pretty extensively about um, the fact that, that, that universal salvation has been rejected by the historical Christian church even up to today in our age. That, that universal salvation, that every single human being that's ever lived will be saved, is a doctrine that the church has rejected as heresy. It's been examined closely and it's not supportive um, in God's word. So, you read this, these two texts, out of context, you just pull it out, and undoubtedly many of you have, heard, have had this quoted to you, out of context, where someone will say, well, you believe in predestination, then how come, you know, 1 Timothy says this? And it gives a sense that God wants to do something, but he can't do it. Which, of course, is a very grave error. Now, as, as we talked about last time, the key often to understand these passages is their context. So let's look at the context. Let's read verses 1 through 8 of 1 Timothy 2. And as I read it and you follow along, think about what the topic is. What is it that Paul is talking about? What is he telling Timothy? And this is what Paul says to Timothy. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What is Paul talking about? What is his topic? He's urging Christians to pray. Right? And to pray for whom? To pray for everyone. He's not talking specifically about God wanting to provide salvation to everyone, but being unable to, something restricting the Almighty God. No, he's talking about our duties as Christians that have been revealed to Paul the Apostle that we are to pray for every single person. This sets the context for us to understand these two verses, right? And this is also how Augustine and Calvin both understood this passage. That God is saving people from all categories of mankind. Not just the Jews. So when we see the phrase, we read the phrase, all people, it's as in all kinds of people. Not all as inclusive to every single person, but all classifications, all types. That Paul's saying something that is kind of remarkable, really, when we think about it. We can put it in our context. In fact, <clears throat> Paul is saying he's, he, God, is even willing to save kings, even willing to save our political leaders. And these first century Christians hearing that are probably just as gobsmacked as we are of, of the mercy of God that he would save such people. These are people at the time in the first century that were persecuting the church. So we're not talking just about the Roman emperor, we're talking about the leaders everywhere, wherever the church happened to be that was suffering sporadic persecution rather than empire-wide persecution. <clears throat> so, I think that explains that passage. And again, as we saw in, oh, forgot to write this down for you. So as we saw in all three of these passages that we looked at, context is what it's about. That's why, you know, we, first of all, we must know our Bible. We must know what the Bible is telling us. Then, it is proper and good to memorize Scripture. If you memorize Scripture without knowing what the Bible says, then you're going to eventually run into a problem. We don't do this with any book of literature if we want to make sense of it. Although we may know certain passages from Shakespeare or from Melville, um, if, but if we have not read those works, if we don't know what the story's about, then the passages might be cute, they might be witty, but they're really utter, utterly meaningless in what, what the author is trying to 
communicate to us. So that's why we need to know what our Bibles say. That's why we read our Bibles and, and not just memorize Scripture, although both are important. I'm not saying not to memorize, but I'm saying when you memorize, you need to know the context of the verse you're memorizing. Now we get into the second type or second category of passages, problem passages. We'll just use that for an easy way to, um, to refer to it. These seem to suggest Those saved, or we could say initially saved, will perish, can perish, may perish. So as we look at this, you know, we're also going to be talking about the, the doctrine of, um, this will of course impact another doctrine, right? What, what doctrine might this also apply to? Preservations of the preservation, preservation, preservation of the saints. Very good. You said it better than I. So we're going to look at four passages in this category. And the first two kind of work hand in hand. So, I'm going to refer to these and read them one after another, and then we'll discuss what they both are communicating. And the first one is Romans 14, chapter 14, verse 15. And here, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, for if, you, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom, for whom excuse me, Christ died. Then, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 8, 11 Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. You can see how these two verses mirror each other. And they're both talking about um, brothers stumbling. The second one specifically is talking about, it's, it's like narrowing down the focus. In context it's talking about um, eating food offered to idols. <clears throat> So, um, in, in both of these passages, right off, we, we should see, we need to know, Paul is not speaking about a believer being lost. He denies elsewhere that that is even possible. And just to make sure we're clear on this, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8, and we'll see a very clear example that you've heard before, but you're going to hear it again if I can get my 
Bible's pages not to stick. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Paul writes, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul here is being very, uh, he's cast a wide net. There's nothing that can separate us. So there's nothing that can, that can steal, rob our salvation from us. Well, you may say, well, <laughs> it, Paul didn't mention that we could rob each other's salvation. Well, that makes absolutely no sense when, when the mightiest angelic powers can't take it from us and another human being, by doing something unthinking, unwise, unkind, stupidly, could, could rob it, and, uh, the salvation. And obviously, when Paul says, nor anything else in all creation, that includes all of us, Right? We can't harm someone else's salvation. We may cause them to stumble, and we ought not to do that. <clears throat> so Paul is speaking here. What is he speaking about? We know he's not speaking about salvation being lost. He's speaking to Christians who are acting irresponsibly. They're showing disregard for the welfare of their fellow believers, And we can see this back to Romans chapter 14. And there's, there's a, um, three verses specifically I want to read here in Romans chapter 14 that um, show what the essence, what the theme here of, of what Paul is writing about in this chapter. about our relationships, about our, our ethical interaction with one another, if you will. So, first of all, Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So he's setting the stage here. Paul's setting the stage. This is, this is what I want to talk to you about, right? I'm talking about the weaker brother and, and, and sister. Um, and, and then let's look at verse 10 of this chapter. Paul asks here to those he's writing to, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? It's kind of like he's talking to a couple people. Why do you do this and then why do you do that? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then look at verse 13. Therefore, there's Paul's important therefore, let us not pass a judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So these people that Paul is addressing specifically that he has in mind as he writes this are those who show disregard for the welfare of their fellow believers. They don't care if they hurt 
others in regard to their spiritual walk. We all may be guilty of this at one time or another where we just want to be proven right. You know, it doesn't matter what. If we have to just beat the person down into submission, you know, we'll walk away from, you know, that, that crumbled heap. It's like, well, I won that argument. So this is the type of attitude that, that Paul is addressing here. And um, it's, it's the self-centeredness. We can see it. He kind of wraps it up um, in a way. Look at verse 20. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So that kind of begs the question, how, how does that destroy the work of God? Well, what is the work of God that Paul is talking about in chapter 14? It is not salvation, right? We, we see that. It's not in there. What he's talking about is the unity in the church. That's the work of God that Paul is telling us, do, don't destroy this by arguing over these piddly things. So very clearly, this is not about someone who is brought to salvation losing their salvation and perishing. It's understandable if, if you look at this out of the context or you don't understand the context and you see that people are being destroyed. Well, when we go to heaven, we, we don't categorize that under the, under the heading of destruction. Heaven. You know, destruction help, happens elsewhere. Not to those that are um, brought into the kingdom, adopted as God's children. Our next passage under this category is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. So you can head that way. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27. The author of Hebrews here writes to the church in 10, 26 through 27, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fur, uh, fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So again, let's look at the context. A little bit wider than just this one chapter in Hebrews. Let's consider... The, the book itself, the, the letter, the sermon, if you will, um, of Hebrews. Who was the target audience here? Well, it was first century Jews who had received knowledge of Jesus Christ and Christianity. But yet, had not severed their ties to Judaism. They were still in and practicing the old covenant system. They believed that that was what God had commanded them to do for all times. 
keeping the ritual feasts and the sacrifices. So they had not yet abandoned those things to accept the perfect and once for all time sacrifice provided by Jesus Christ on Calvary. They were under a lot of societal and family pressure to not go off on this odd sect that at the time the followers of Jesus were considered to be just this weird sect that had branched off from Judaism, from orthodox historical Judaism. So their family and their friends were saying, man, you, you, you got to give that up. You know, do not forsake you know, the temple and the sacrifices, the feasts. You must keep all of these things. So a person in that position is being warned here that the only true way of salvation is under this new covenant. And if they go back to the traditions of the old covenant, abandoning the new, they will be lost. If they reject Christ, there remains no other sacrifice for them. No matter how many times they go to the temple and sacrifice there, it is to no avail. They're wasting their time. They're lost. And they're lost because they never were true believers in the first place. Now amongst this group that this is addressed to, there's certainly those who are true believers. But they're caught in a predicament. They're in a dilemma. They don't know what to do. They're in a society, and it's, it's a bit hard for us to understand, but if you're from a very close family, you know, the type of family where anytime there's anything that happens, you've got 14 cousins at the house, you know, and that sort of, that's a very close extended family. Well, this is kind of like what the, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish society um, was, was like. It's like you just don't disregard something that your family t tells you. You just don't blow it off, say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. So there are those who are struggling, but are, but are amongst the elect. Then there are others who may have been, for whatever reason, you know, and we've, we, we know how this goes, are attracted for a bit. Maybe they were in a crowd, and the word was preached by one of the apostles, and they were um, they were moved, they were caught up in the emotionalism of hearing this great salvation and they wanted to be part of it for a time. But their family traditions drew them back. And what did our Lord say about our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers? That we must love him more than them. And if we don't love him more than them, we're not amongst his flock. It's a hard thing to hear, but he's not saying don't love your mom and dad. Don't honor your mother and father. Don't love your brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousins. Don't love them. He's not saying that. He's no, that the love for him surpasses all things. And what have we found in our practical everyday life as believers? What have we found? We found that we love those other people to a higher degree because we love Jesus, that Jesus shows us the way to love in a more perfect sense. So 
the essence here is those who, who claim to benefit from Christ's blood yet remain defiant in their sin deceive themselves into a false assurance of salvation. What the Lord commands us is not necessarily what we want. And this is what, what the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience. Just because you've always done this, just because you want to continue to do this, you must be obedient to what God says. And these things are of no use anymore. They were foreshadows of what was to come. And what was to come has come. The foreshadows are of no use anymore. Our last passage in this category is in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2.1. So please turn there. This passage may be the most powerful passage of those in this category. Peter says here in 2 Peter 2.1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So, this is very powerful. Speaking of those who have been redeemed by Jesus' death, it seems, yet they perish. How can that be? But who, and it's, and it's easy, because we can see it right here in this, in this first verse, who is Peter talking about? Who is he speaking of specifically? He tells us false prophets and false teachers who do a certain thing, who teach destructive heresies. That's not to say that there are false prophets and false teachers who teach undestructive or safe heresies. No, they all go together. So are they Christians? No, they, they are not Christians. Peter's saying, wake up to these people, to what's going on. They're not saved people who perish, that he's speaking of, but unsaved people who are perishing. But then there's this one clause in this in this verse that, that can be very problematic and cause us to scratch our heads without a doubt. How is it then that Peter speaks of them of even denying the master who bought them? So in the Greek here, there's an emphasis. Peter's being very emphatic when he says even in how they claim to have been bought by the blood of Christ shed on the cross, yet deny Christ as their sovereign Lord. 
They're not teaching, they're not preaching what Christ commanded to be taught and to be preached. They've gone off on a different path, yet they claim Christ as their Lord. We have a theological term for people like this. They're called apostates. And John, the Apostle John, says this of apostates in his first letter, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. And this is how we identify an apostate. John says, they are those that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, a little aside here, think about this. This is, this is why we, 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 we treasure the creeds and the confessions of the, the Orthodox Christian Church. This is why we, we cling to and, and uphold our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Because we do not depart from the Word of God. These confessions explain to all exactly what the Bible teaches and what we hold to be the true faith. So if we depart from it, if we depart from the Bible, in other words, because of course the confessions are not inspired, but they come out of the inspired Word. So we have, these, we have this guideline is what I'm trying to say. That um, if you come from one of the very broadly evangelical uh, churches that we call non-denominational, you look at their website or you visit their church and they tell you what they're about. It's usually something very very vague on, on their website. Um, nothing, no, usually nothing that is shocking, that is unbiblical, but when you're in a church like that, it is quite possible that at some point someone may come along, perhaps very charismatic, and lead the people apart away from that, and all that has to do is the webmaster just has to change the homepage of their website, and they're following a different gospel. I'm not saying that happens often, but it does happen. Um, in, in very significant ways. We've seen this in the late 20th and now the early 21st century, where certain things that were once clearly held as abominations by all Christians are now embraced by some who still call themselves Christians that have departed from the faith, who are now saying that marriage does not have to be between a man and a woman. That um, it's, it was very, very... Uh, wrong for um, the Bible, the, the authors of the Bible in their human, sinful, patriotic way, patriotic way to exclude women from the preaching ministry. And as one very, I can't remember who it was, I wish I could, he pointed out that um, the first thing that he, in modern church history that you see is when there is the departure from, from the prohibition of women preaching 
and serving as pastors in a church, when a, when a denomination or church departs from that, eventually, he says, and I think this to be true, eventually the embracing of homosexual relationships and marriage follow. It's one, what seems to be a small thing, well, you know, why, why not? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, the Bible says it, but we'll just overlook it. And then the next thing you know, something that is obviously very, very wrong, is embraced and is taking place. Okay, we're going to look at the third category now. So we're done with the, the, those that uh, seem to teach that God has a will to uh, save everybody and seem to suggest initially those initially saved have perished or will perish or may perish. That there's no eternal security in our faith. That that's, wow, that's just, um, that's very unsettling. Like, could you imagine thinking that? And I, I hope you don't. Because, number one, it's not what the Bible teaches. Number two, it's not what our confession states. And number three, it's certainly not what we preach. This one, number three, is we're going to deal with these passages that seem to be talking about universal salvation. It's like, okay, Pastor Ken, you've been talking about how the church has been saying that the, the universal salvation is just not what the Bible teaches, but yet my friend um, who goes to such and such a church has given me these verses and they, and they make a very good argument that, may, that maybe, perhaps, maybe perhaps you're wrong on this. So, And if you're seeing what I hope you're seeing, that there's, there's, there is you know, great overlap in these things we're talking about, that's, that's what I want you to see. It's like the Bible does a marvelous job of making sure everything's covered when we understand all of these different things. This category, for many of those who are opposed to limited atonement, particular redemption, um, this is the most important type of scripture passage that, that they will use. The first one I want to look at, at is in Isaiah 53. Specifically verse 6. So turn there if you haven't already. So Isaiah 
writes, the word of the Lord comes to him, and he prophesies, he writes as the word of the Lord commands him to write, and he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now this is from the part of the book of Isaiah we call the Song of the Suffering Servant. And we must admit, if looking at this passage, this verse in isolation, it does seem to speak of universal redemption. Because there's, there's two plural pronouns in there. All we and us all. So the, the, the first part of the passage, or the, the verse, what we would call uh, 6a, if we divide it into two parts, we have an a and a b. 6a, all we... Like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we agree that everyone, all people, as Isaiah is saying, is in a state of sin. So part A there, if it speaks of all people, then the biblical rule is then the second part of the verse has the same um, target in mind, right? The same, it's saying, speaking of the same group, where in 6b, Isaiah says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So then, with that understanding, we would say, now this is just, I'm, I'm giving kind of the other argument here. So I, I'm not teaching that this is what it's saying. We're, I need to flesh it out a little bit more for you. But what the argument would be is then, <clears throat> all we and us all had their iniquity, sin laid on Jesus by God. So it would seem to say that all have gone astray, we know that, but all of, the, all of, all of those who've gone astray, their iniquity has been laid on them, has been laid on God, or laid on, on the Son by the Father. Again, we must interpret the Bible in a way that, that it all makes sense, that it's coherent and, and consistent. And to just pick that verse and interpret it in that way, we're not being coherent with other biblical passages. We're not being consistent in our interpretation. And I'll tell you why we're not, because of the preceding verse in Isaiah 53. Verse 5 gives us who Isaiah is basically talking about. And in verse 5, he writes, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Okay, there's those plural pronouns, right? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Again, plural. And with his wounds, we are healed. So again, 
5a, the first part of verse 5, is concerned with sinners, speaking of our transgressions and iniquities that the servant suffers for. 6b, excuse me, 5b, the servant's suffering, though, brings us peace and healing. So, understanding of the context in verse 6 by reading verse 5 helps make it clearer, I hope, that the ones, what what Isaiah is, is telling us, that the ones for whom Jesus bore iniquity are those who have been brought to a state of peace with God, that is, those that have been justified by God. So all people have not been brought to a state of peace. We know all people have not been justified. This is who he's speaking of, though. Just like Paul in Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Bible, but very clearly the New Testament, talks about peace only being obtained through and with God. That's the only way that this can be obtained. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other human endeavor that brings this peace that is being written about. And I think, I, I, I hesitate to, to move on to the um, next uh, two examples um, because I don't want to go over and uh, I want to make sure that we, we, we give them enough attention. So I think what I'm going to do is, is stop with my instruction here. We have a few minutes if there's any comments that... Uh, anyone would like to make, or even a question someone would like to pose, um, we, we can have that. Uh, Pastor Mike. I think on that Isaiah passage, also verse 1 helps narrow it up, because he asks, who has believed our message? So the message is not believed by all, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So those two questions, he's narrowing who his next comments are going to address, which would be the elect as we look at that. And then the elect, then we can use those all we, all us, and it, it usually makes sense. Very good, thank you. That, that's, that's helpful, right? It's a, we're, again, Pastor Mike is talking about context. He's, he's widened out the context a little bit more than I did, and I think shows even probably a better argument than I presented to you, which I worried as I was speaking it that like, um, I'm, 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 I'm afraid of confusing myself with what I was saying, so hopefully I didn't confuse you. Uh, Linda. Yeah, because I was thinking that whole, that whole chapter is constantly referring to us and we and us and we, and then if you continue reading forth, it talks about how he gave his life for many. And now it starts talking about many. So now we know many doesn't mean all, right. all everybody. Right. Very good, yes. The reference to many helps us in Isaiah 53. That many means a lot, but it doesn't mean every single person. 
That's a good point. And we see by these, these comments what we've discussed before, what we've mentioned um, that the target audience of God's revelation, although it benefits all people, no matter, regardless, and all people should know God's revelation. They should read the Bible. They should try to understand it. They should follow its moral precepts. God has designed the world to follow his moral law. But the Bible, especially when we get into the New Testament, especially when we get into the, into the letters, we can see that it's written to a specific people. It's addressed to, to a certain people, right? It's not addressed to, you know, none of the apostles wrote a letter to the whole world. Dear sinners out there, please read this. This is what I've got to say to you. No, the, the, the preaching of the gospel did that, right? When they preached the gospel, that's what they were doing. But the church is established by God through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is preached to all people. We don't preach just to the elect, do we? We, we don't teach just the, the elect, probably. And the apostles did not preach to just the elect. Neither did Jesus teach just the elect. Because Jesus knew but none of the others, including us, knew who the elect were. We don't know who the elect is. We're not what is often referred to as hyper-Calvinists, and we're going to talk about this at some point in the near future in this, in this series, that um, why, you know, if there's particular atonement, if there's limited atonement, why do we preach the gospel to all? That's a very good question. That's hyper-Calvinism to say, no, we don't preach, the, the gospel is not given to all. It's like casting pearls before swine. Well, I can't tell a swine from a sheep often, and neither can, can, can any of us. We may have indications, but there was times when each of us, before God transformed us, when each of us were pretty swinish in how we lived, and we weren't very sheep-like. So, okay, um, great class. Thanks for your participation. I appreciate it. Let's close in prayer, and we'll have about an 11-minute break before the 11 a.m. service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could delve into your word, Father. Thank you for um, just what, what happens when we do this, when we, we, can, we see how we can help each other in understanding the Bible. Um, we have iron sharpening iron. Uh, we, have, we have those that, that um, can help others uh, understand things and, and even to clarify things that I say sometimes in a, in a clumsy way, Father. And that's appreciative because it's, it's all to your glory that we may be obedient servants to you, that we may understand your word, that we may be able to um, be part of the Great Commission as you have commanded uh, us to be, that we are to... We are to teach and preach the gospel. We are to go amongst the nations, all the unsaved of the world, Father. So thank you. We praise you. We pray for the, the coming 11 o'clock hour. Um, Father, you know, be with Pastor Mike as he presents our, our worship and Brother John as he leads us in our hymns, Father, and help me in, in the preaching to come at 11 a.m. 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.